Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A directive does not require understanding, agreement, or acceptance in order to be carried out. In a high-performing team, once a clear decision has been handed down, people are expected to follow it even if they disagree. Some employees may harbor distrust, but if the directive is sound, the simple act of carrying it out will foster trust and produce results. Everything hinges on adherence to the directive. In the Gospel of Mark, when the followers of Jesus heard that he was alive and had been seen by Mary Magdalene, they refused to believe it, and when they passed the message on to others, they did not believe them either. This refusal to believe is the culmination of betrayal, misplaced fear, and a complete lack of trust in the Lord. Still, all hope is not lost, despite themselves. And whatever their attitude toward the message, the followers of Jesus carried out the directive given to Mary Magdalene to share the news that the Lord is alive and going into Galilee just as he said he would. In other words, it's not who you are or what you believe, but what you do that counts. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 212 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue down the trail to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to wrap up this week. We're going to take another small grouping of verses and then go for a strong finish in next week's episode. So today we want to talk about verses 9 through 13, and we have an opportunity now to come back to the topic of Mary Magdalene. So we pointed out last week that the stance of the Murbering women, their fear is what kept them away from Jesus when he was being put to shame and ultimately put to death. But then even after Joseph of Arimathea went against the will of God and took Jesus down from the cross in order to overcome his own sense of shame, or at a minimum to ensure that the will of the council, to which he was party and in fact a prominent member, that that will would be executed in the place of the will of the father of Jesus. He ensured that Jesus was dead. He took him down from the cross. The shame was buried away, hidden away. And then, of course, the women went early in the morning. 
which again, we argued on the podcast, was an indication that they were waiting for a quiet time when nobody was around. Everybody seems to be terrified of Caesar. And of course, at the same time, terrified of the council, because whether it is the religious council or the council of your community within the Roman Empire, or it is the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate himself. Functionally, it's the authority that you fear because you don't trust God. Let's take a moment to explain this just one more time, Richard. On the one hand, Pontius Pilate and the council have power because God gave it to them, because God holds everything in the palm of his hand. This undermines the whole philosophical quagmire of the theodicy, and frankly, I don't care because it's a pointless quagmire. The biblical worldview is much more practical. This is the way things are, and if your premise is that God is the master and the creator, that means that what you perceive as evil and what you perceive as good is all in the palm of his hand. So, Pontius Pilate ensured the execution of Jesus. The reason Jesus isn't afraid is not because Pontius Pilate is going to refrain from executing him. It's because Jesus trusts his father who put Pontius Pilate there and allowed what happened to happen. Functionally, fear is the only sin. Jesus was tried and convicted by every court as being guilty which to all human eyes, including the eyes of his disciples, proved that he was guilty, proved that he was a sinner. But the only sin is fear. So in the eyes of God, he was not a sinner, and he was uniquely without sin because he did not fear Caesar. So the sin is the fear of Caesar. The fear of God, however, is correct. The fact that Jesus was not afraid of Caesar and was exclusively afraid of his father, proved that he was correct. We talked about the centurion. The centurion was impressed, uniquely impressed. So then how do we evaluate the followers of Jesus? Because so far, during and after the execution, the crucifixion, every single one of them was afraid of Caesar and what might happen from Caesar, they are all sinners because sin can also be translated from Hebrew as rebellion. They rebelled against God, the only one to whom they owed loyalty. From the beginning of Mark, we learned what the book of Mark demands of the followers of Jesus, that they A, exclusively fear God, and B, spread the message that is, sow the seed. Jesus isn't going to be there to hold the hand of every single follower from now on. It is now about the message, about the word, about the teaching going out. So the only way to tell if they are loyal is whether they sow the seed. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark functions very much like an economos in a Roman household. And for those who don't know, the economos is the person responsible for ensuring that the house rules are followed. It is the word that provides the etymology for our modern term economy, economics, because the idea of economics is that you manage society, 
by managing the exchange and the value of goods and services. It's a form of management. So the economos was the head slave who managed all the other slaves. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark comes to explain the mission. Then he shows you how to execute the mission. Then he moves on to another place and does the same thing and then eventually he dies and goes away. So it's been about the teaching all along. It's not as though now that he's gone, it's suddenly about the teaching. It's just that while he was with you, he was preparing you so that you could walk according to the light, as John will explain in another gospel, after the fact so that the mission would continue. Keep this in mind. Jesus is very hands-on and at the same time very strategic throughout the gospel. He's focused on the mission, he's coaching to the mission, and he sets up his team to use modern terminology so that after he's gone, the team can run the program. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. The first time we had Mary Magdalene mentioned, it was just a few verses ago, it didn't mention anything about these seven demons. Hmm, how interesting that this is a detail that's provided in this verse and not previously. The attentive reader should have their ears peaked at this point, noticing, ah, there's an added detail here that doesn't need to be here that could have maybe served a better purpose somewhere else. Why does it need to be here? Well, don't forget what I said. The only sin that exists is the sin of rebellion, the sin of fear of Caesar. This is the only sin that exists. So therefore, if you are possessed by a devil, they would be producing the only sin, which is fear, which is rebellion. In order for her to report the news of the resurrection, she has to have that demon cast out of her. And the seven is the mark of fullness, meaning that she was completely deluded, completely compromised by that fear. Now, I also want to point out that Mark here is mentioning a second time that it was early on the first day of the week. This is really critical because to the extent that they were sneaking around at dawn so that the soldiers wouldn't notice them or whatever, or the council wouldn't find out, Jesus here is again like a manager who comes into the office before his team arrives. <laughs> He's like, you want to get up early in the morning? I'll be there and we'll get down to business. No quiet time for you before the boss arrives. So he meets her early in the morning and Mary Magdalene is singled out for preaching. Let's read the next verse. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. I want to raise the same question that we raised last week, specifically. If he told you that the Son of Man would suffer many things, would be killed, and would be raised, if he told you that and you trusted in that report, why are you cowering and huddling in the corner crying and mourning. Why? You don't understand. Mary Magdalene now has been healed. So it's the classic pattern. She was healed, meaning the demons were removed, and she was now empowered. And by empowered, I don't mean it in the way that we talk about empowerment in the modern sense. I mean it in terms of the ergon, 
the deed that is put in you by the commandment. This is how Paul talks about works. You do have the work put in you, and then the work controls your footsteps, and it controls what you say, but because the work was put in you, it's not your deed. It's so important to remember this. So she's been healed because now the light that illumines her lamp, so to speak, is not hers. It was put there by Jesus. And that's the light that ensures that you don't walk in the darkness. This was the detail that changed Mary Magdalene from one who was fleeing, trembling, amazed, and would not say anything to anyone, to someone who was then ready to do the work. It took the casting out of the demons. It took recollection of that fact before she was able to do the work, as you say. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, wait for it, they refused to believe it. And here, once again, I have to keep saying this, apisteo means without trust. I don't trust. They do not trust in the report. And this should come as no surprise, because if you didn't trust in the report when Jesus was put to shame and executed, why would you trust in the report, as we'll say in another gospel, even if they should raise someone from the dead? If you didn't believe Moses and the prophets, why would suddenly the resurrection change your opinion? Which means you have to take seriously what we said last week, that the reality is proposed in the crucifixion. And this is why we don't believe that the mourning and weeping was some show of piety. Because how could it be some show of piety if when they actually hear the word, they don't believe? So what are they weeping and mourning for? Which is what you just asked, Father. They're weeping and mourning for themselves that they lost this guy who they thought was something, but they never listened to him. They didn't know what the teaching was and they weren't ready to teach it because they didn't even understand the lesson themselves. If they trusted, they would have said, look, he promised that he would be raised and he's our teacher. And in order to learn from our master, in order to learn from any teacher in any school of thought or discipline, you have to place your trust in the instruction, period. I was so deeply touched the first time I saw the Darawish in Turkey stepping onto the floor to recite the name of God in Arabic, all the 99 names of God that they use, different words in Arabic, different essentially adjectives of God's generosity, his kindness, his mercy, and so forth. And what they do, in English we call them the whirling dervishes, right? It's a familiar term. They go out onto the floor and they spin around reciting all of these terms. It's a very lovely ceremony. But what really struck me is the way they walk onto the floor and they bow with reverence. They're not bowing to anybody. They're just bowing with reverence. And it's so dignified. It reminds me also of the way that monks bow to the chair of the abbot in a monastery, even when he's traveling, because it's functional. You're just bowing. And this bowing, this act of humility is beautiful. It's dignified. It's something foreign to Western culture. When you bow in Western culture, people ask what's wrong with you. They don't appreciate the value of making yourself small. This discipline of bowing is also found in Asian culture 
around the various martial arts. You step on the mat, you bow. Whether it's to the teacher, whether it's to the teaching of that particular dojo, whether it's to your opponent, ultimately you're bowing to the discipline within that school. You are showing respect. The way that an altar server in the Byzantine tradition has to bow when he enters into the sanctuary. All of these gestures, all of them point to this universal human understanding that when we are part of a school or a discipline, we have to humble ourselves. When I studied Kung Fu, there was a table. As soon as you changed your clothes, you came in and there was a table and it had a picture of the teacher, a picture of the teacher's teacher, and a picture of the teacher's teacher's teacher. They were all three on this table and you bowed to that because it's not just to the teacher, it's this teaching that was passed down from one teacher to the next. It doesn't have to do with the teacher, it has to do with the continuity of the teaching that comes down from 100 years ago that we were learning when we were doing Kung Fu, how much more so this teaching that goes all the way back to the beginning of Torah and Sinai. Right, now in our culture, everything is hyper-personalized. They don't get it. They look at the picture of the teacher on the wall and they say, who does he think he is? Why is his picture up? If that's your question, I'm tired of arguing with you. Just go back and listen to Mark. My other favorite is, well, we should have a variety of teachers. No, you shouldn't have a variety of teachers. Come on, people. There's only one Yoda. Even in your Star Wars movies, you understand that there aren't two Yodas. He's a master. Jesus is the master. And they didn't trust him. This is what I'm driving at with these examples of humility. It's rebellion, as you said, Richard. If you can't submit to the master, not with sycophancy by heaping praise, but by demonstrating that you're submitting to the instruction. Because when you bow to Jesus, it's not about Jesus. It's about his father's teaching. It's critical that we understand this. That's why when someone tried to call Jesus good in the Gospel of Mark, he said, no one is good. Give me a break. You can't impress me with false praise. Are you interested in what I care about? Do the commandments of my father. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. So the word here is morphe. You could say that he morphed. I don't know. I mean, that's how we use the word in English. But the point is that, as we've said many times, it isn't about the teacher. It's like Paul says in his epistle that you could be entertaining angels unaware. It's a nice way of saying the one who brings you the judgment of the teaching is the messenger of the king, the angelos. It could be a homeless person. It could be your sister or brother. It could be someone you're fighting with at the office. Whether they actually carry the teaching to you or they reflect the truth of the teaching and you mistreat them. Either way, you're entertaining an angel unaware. And that's exactly what it is, unaware that the form is not what's important. It's the word that's important. So Jesus can appear in any form, 
It's the word that will prove whether it's Jesus or not, which means that the person Jesus is not material. It's not the fact that my Kung Fu teacher studied with this guy who studied with the other guy. It's that he is staying true to that single teaching. The single teaching is embodied by the teacher's teacher's teacher, and then the teacher's teacher, and then the teacher. And then he was grooming his students to then take over once he passed away. And in fact, one of his students did take over after he passed away. And then it's now four teachers. But it doesn't matter who the teacher is as in the person. The person doesn't matter. It's that teaching. That's why when Jesus is dead, it's still everybody's responsibility to sow the seed and to be the sower and to continue the work of making sure that the gospel goes out. And they should have done that. They should have trusted whether or not the teaching of the resurrection was confirmed. I have to keep coming back to this, and I talked about it on Sunday with the community. It is the perfect example. In the Eastern lectionary, on Great and Holy Saturday, we read a lengthy account of Nebuchadnezzar and the three young men. Why? Because you're standing there before the tomb, liturgically, and you're hearing the story of three men who put their lives on the line and were willing to die with no guarantee that God would avenge them or protect them. And they said as much, even if God doesn't take care of us, it doesn't matter. We will abide by his teaching and remain faithful, and we will not worship an earthly power. Very beautiful, very simple story. I love that story. And that's the key here. Jesus died on the cross. You don't know if what he said will come to pass, but you know what he taught. This is where the rubber hits the road. And this is a very powerful admonition to anyone who considers themselves a disciple of the New Testament. What are you waiting for? You have everything you need to continue the mission. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Mary Magdalene, who beheld the risen Lord, had a confirmation. So it's no credit to her at that point. Remember, the credit goes to the one who put the work of the commandment in her, which means the credit goes to Jesus Christ. She did her duty and she preached. And then those who heard the news from her did not believe her and continued to preach and others didn't believe them. This is a very, very interesting metaphor in my estimation, Richard, because the commandment to preach does not require your acceptance or understanding. This is very difficult for systematic theologians because they want to first decide that they have the right tapestry of ideas and then get everyone to sign off and then go off and make everyone agree to their tapestry of ideas. But that's not scripture. Scripture isn't about systematic thought. It's not about any of the things that human beings organize and build and create and impose. That's Platonism. And we just heard that the forms are irrelevant. Thank you very much, Plato. What scripture is interested in is obedience and duty. We just saw Jesus obey right to the end. So now, in a way, they're passing a test. They still don't trust, but they're doing the work. They're still sharing the news. It's positive. And so we'll see, in the narrative arc of the New Testament, we'll see what happens when people begrudgingly still preach the content of Scripture. 
the beauty of this scene is it completely undermines a word which a lot of Christians like to use, which is unbeliever. When Christians say the word unbeliever, they talk about people who are outside of our group, outside of the church. People, those poor, misfortunate people who never understood the love of God and the love of Jesus. But the only unbelievers to whom Jesus is occupied right now in teaching are the ones who spent every waking and sleeping minute in his camp, listening to him preach everything, learning the gospel with every breath. Those are the unbelievers because they're not unbelievers as we think. They are untrusting. They don't trust in him. They don't trust in what they heard. They don't trust it. They still think of themselves as the insiders. That's why they sit around and cry with each other. But they're unbelievers. They don't believe. This is why Jesus has to keep... (laughs) He wasn't able to get through to them while he was alive. He still has to keep working after he's dead to get them to understand. His life was not enough. He didn't have enough time, so he had to keep coming back and reminding them. This is true mercy when the Son of God returns from the dead because you are unbelieving, even though you think, or maybe because you think, you're in the inner circle. And don't fall in the trap of saying, as people often say, this horrible, ungodly, anti-Christ-like statement, you have to believe it in your heart. What are you talking about? We know from the Lord that sin comes from the human heart. So why would you want to believe anything in your heart, from your heart, or about your heart? Stop navel-gazing. The point here is that whatever nonsense was going on inside their head, they at least did their duty and preached the news. And if you trust everything Jesus has taught in the Gospel of Mark, Just by doing that duty over and over and over again, they too can be healed, just like Mary Magdalene. And it doesn't come from them. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.